0: Okay. Here we go. Okay, so welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. We're here with Joseph Bottom, who is the director of the Classics Institute at Dakota State University. So tell us a little bit more about your background, your work for those uh, who aren't yet familiar with you.
1: Well, um, I've been kind of a uh layabout or at least a jack of all trades a generalist uh so i've written you know a children's book that won the christopher medal i've uh, i've uh published two books of poetry I, my doctorate is in medieval philosophy but i'm running an institute at a computer oriented school that's primarily directed at understanding the computer revolution from the perspective of the humanities. So I, you know, I wander around doing a bunch of different stuff. Uh, and the astonishment of course, is that I've been allowed to get away with it. Uh, because we typically live in such a specialized age that nobody gets to say, oh, this year I'm going to be interested in cyber ethics. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun over the years. I, I, taught for a little bit after I finished graduate school. And then I went into magazine work. I was the literary editor for years and years at the weekly standard. Uh, I edited a magazine. I was editor in chief of a magazine in New York. Uh, and then I retired out here to where I live now, which is the black Hills of South Dakota. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, but uh, recently the state university system asked me to go over to the computer oriented college and start up this kind of counter program they felt like they needed somebody on campus who was willing to say maybe this whole social media thing was a mistake <laughs> uh and uh it wasn't entirely raw raw for the computer revolution so i've been organizing programs for them and maybe a degree program down the road uh but of course over the last year and a half it's all been online uh, because of the COVID lockdowns. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- my interest, though, one of my primary interests all along has been uh, American religion, mm-hmm. and espe- especially the sociology of American religion. Now, we haven't had a lot of great, truly world-class theologians in the history of America. We've had some very fine public intellectual theologians from Niebuhr to Richard John Newhouse, Uh, but we haven't had a lot of the kind of people who would rank up in the highest class apart from Jonathan Edwards and at the time of the Great Awakening. Mm -hmm. So what is most interesting in American religion is its sociology. Uh, and that has fascinated me for many years, and I've collected string on it for many years. And in 2015, it issued in a book called An Anxious Age. Yes.
0: yes, and that is how I first discovered your work. And that, that book opened up a lot of doors and a, a lot of questions also for me. So the book that came out in 2014, right? Um, An Anxious Age, so the, the subtitle is The Post-Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America. So tell us a little bit about what is the main thesis of the book and how did you end up deciding to write it?
1: Well, the thesis of the book is that the new um, leftism to a large degree, somewhat on the right, but that this kind of new spirits of activism that I was seeing, um, but really crystallized for me when a magazine hired me to write an essay on the Occupy Wall Street movement. Mm -hmm. And I went down and interviewed all those people, hung out with them, ended up not writing the piece and having to eat my own expenses because I just couldn't get clear on what I wanted to say in an essay about them. And I realized down the road that what I was perceiving in them was an enormous spiritual anxiety. Mm. They wanted the world to be different than it was. In theological language, they saw that the world lies in sin aborning. They see this condition. Uh, and, you know, to ask them for specific policies, they were, would be to offend them. They, were, they said, you know, we can't give you specific policies. Because that's a betrayal of our movement, mm-hmm. uh, our movement for the 99%, um, which has to be never ending. And I thought, if only they could see that this is a religious language, yeah. right, that they're, that they're and what they're expressing is spiritual anxiety. And then I went back and I read Max Weber again, yes. uh, who I hadn't read since I was, you know, uh, an undergraduate. But I went back and read him very seriously. Uh, Everything I could get my hands on. I did a deep dive into Weber. And of course, the subtitle of An Anxious Age is very much modeled on Weber, right? It's this Protestant ethic. It's the spirit of America um, that I was trying to discern. And I realized that American religious history brought us to this point. In the book, I argue What i call the erie canal thesis of american history which in its particularity is about how all american religion ends up passing through upstate new york from the mormons to the spiritualists to the table tappers and the you know and the great awakening and the revival movements it's all out of upstate new york so that the the lines of american religion expand out of the protestants and then constrict again to go through upstate new york in the 19th century and then explode On the rest of america that's the narrow specific part of the erie canal thesis of american history the broader thesis is simply this that the question you have to ask yourself to understand any moment of american history is what is the state of protestant religion Mm. and the state of protestant religion in our own age is an utterly utterly de-churched utterly apparently secularized spiritual and moral movement that seeks goals that can only be understood spiritually it seeks belonging it seeks to understand that its members are good people and they they have that question am i a good person with the same anxiety with which dutch calvinists would have asked are they saved it is fundamentally the same question. It's just the same question put in terms of a world in which you're not, you're not allowed to, and you don't even know to phrase it supernaturally. Uh, and this is where I perceive this um, Occupy Wall Street movement uh, to be coming from. I thought they were recreating apocalyptic uh, and uh, uh, reformist religious movements from the history of Protestantism without knowing that that was what they were doing. And they were doing so down two paths. One is, as I, as I like to put it, is morphological. These are perpetual possibilities for human behavior. Right? And we see that shape. You can see that shape among the Khmer Rouge. You can see that shape among the Um, uh, radical Anabaptists, violent radical Anabaptists, which is not a phrase one gets to say often enough, (laughs) right? But the radical violent Anabaptists of of the Munster Rebellion. And you can see it in America. It's a perpetual possibility for human behavior. It's a shape of sociological shape. At the same time in America, it's not just a shape that could happen anywhere. It's a shape whose limits are, are defined are given reality by a history there's a genealogical descent mm-hmm. down to these people from the puritans and then through upstate new york and this is i trace it through the social gospel movement okay. uh, in the late 19th early 20th centuries and i say they are the heirs and they are occupying positions in the society that were exactly what the mainline protestants used to occupy or at least some of these post protestants are so that they have the same conditions and the same uh spiritual anxieties and the same conviction of their own moral rightness to a certain extent then the radicals are rebelling against their own post-protestant parents saying you're hypocrites you say you believe in climate change but you know you're hypocrites about being radical enough about it uh and yet that is the children of the of the mainline protestants rebelling against their parents because their parents were insufficiently christian Mm. we're seeing this pattern again and again
0: now this is interesting because so i i read your book right after i finished undergrad and i was um i was in a university in manhattan And I think Occupy happened when I was, I think I was a sophomore when it first started around Wall Street. But, you know, more generally in a lot of my classes and just in conversations with classmates, like I started to see that there is a real fervor uh, having to, real fervor towards these social issues um, to the point of, um, I mean, there's something very zealous about it. The way that people became very self-righteous if you said the wrong things or, you know, like, I just saw this tendency to want to prove how righteous people are. And at that time, I didn't really have the means to articulate what I was perceiving, that there was something very religious, you know, and actually puritanical about it. But, you know, when I first read your book, I started to realize, wait, no, this is, uh, this is something religious, perhaps they may not identify as religious or associate themselves with some kind of institution. But, the ethic the ethos of it is and i think yeah like eventually i started to read other authors who are kind of building on weber's thesis but weber saw this very early on um and well, it's he saw
1: some of the problems yeah, um, kind of of the of the way in which protestantism develops a protestantism which in the hands of luther and calvin thought it was setting you free from anxiety mm-hmm. Right? And then he, right. he describes how anxiety makes this sort of backdoor return.
0: It makes its way back. Uh, yeah. But,
1: okay. you know, that underutilized device of sociological or topic of sociological analysis, which is spiritual anxiety, mm-hmm. Weber understood its reality. And in the, the years since, there have been a handful of people who do, notably Peter Berger. Sure. the great sociologist, Peter mm-hmm. Berger. But in those long years since, it was now over a century, um, it's generally dropped out as a tool for understanding sociological tides. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you can, you can see hints of it in Tocqueville. You can see hints of it here and there. Peter Berger worked on it, as I said, but um, it, it really started to come back um, the, the phenomenon. And we lack the sociological tools to understand it, sociological tools that Weber had shouted at us about. So, what happened
0: to that? How did that get lost?
1: Um, partly because the secularizers thought that spiritual anxiety was a social construct that you could get rid of, that hmm. wasn't native to human beings. It was something just you know that 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 awful thing of christianity created and we could just dismiss it um now weber had shown that the attempt to dismiss it in the in the magisterial protestant reformers actually allowed it to sneak back in um you know because you can never be sure that you're actually um saved But you also don't have works righteousness anymore. You can't give the money to the monastery to help your salvation. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? It piles up into, you can't spend it because ostentatious spending is immoral. So it piles up into pools of capital, which then has to be invested and we get capitalism out of the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. This is the thesis of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, which I have to say, Stephen, is a, fun and somewhat impish book yeah because what he's doing is he's taking the marxist analysis that says um the burgers and the people living outside the wall uh emerged suddenly got new wealth because and it broke against the throne and altar understanding of economics and politics And they weren't ready to break with Christianity, but they needed a new Christianity. Mm -hmm. So we got the Reformation because of the economic changes. And Max Weber comes along and says, you know what? I'm going to stand you on your head. You think that economics caused the Protestant Reformation? The Protestant Reformation caused capitalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he just turns the whole analysis upside down. It's a very impish book, given the dominance of Marxist analysis, even in his own time. It's a very impish inversion of Marx. Um, And Weber was a kind of impish guy uh, intellectually, so it's not surprising. But with that in hand, with his understanding that spiritual anxiety is a a fact Mm -hmm. inside all of us, some people feel it very little, some people feel it a lot. But you cannot get rid of it simply by saying, well, the spiritual is unreal.
2: Mm.
1: And the secularists thought you could. Why did we suppose that all those people would leave the mainline Protestant churches, which have collapsed, uh, and take nothing with them? What they took with them was a way of understanding the world. This is that genealogical path. toward understanding where um, we are now out of the roots of American Protestantism, what they took with them was a kind of social gospel understanding of the world, that sins are not individual, they're social. They're committed at the level of governments, they're committed at the level of societies. Mm -hmm. um, And yes, you shouldn't participate in them. But as Rauschenbusch, the great social mm. gospel theologian, said, the notion that Christ died for the sake of reforming a, a Tennessee miner who beats his wife is ridiculous.
2: Yeah.
1: He died for, and he bore on his body the marks of great six or seven great social sins. Mm. And as I was reading that, I thought two things. One, we now have a very clear path by which mainline Protestantism becomes the post-Protestants. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, uh, we have an astonishing coherence of goals for the social gospel movement and the current agitators. The first path is simply, I describe it in the book like this, um, for the Rauschenbusch was a christian i mean we don't get anywhere denying his christianity Mm -hmm. or denying his really superior biblical and theological knowledge we don't get anywhere just dismissing that but why didn't it pass on why does it decline in every generation of a social gospel church until people stop going to church and my analysis was in the the social gospel movement this is a metaphor from wittgenstein Christ is essentially the ladder. Okay. We use him to climb to a higher ledge of moral understanding. Uh Right, He bore on his body the social sins, and he taught us what they were. And we climb on that ladder to a higher ledge of social understanding, at which point, to use Wittgenstein's metaphor, we don't need the ladder anymore. Sounds a
0: little Hegelian to me. We've evolved past this. Phase. This momentary phase,
1: right? And you know, without buying Hegelian history and the mm-hmm. thesis and antithesis stuff, sure. I think we can say here's an actual example of the logic that didn't seem important to Rauschenbusch will seem important to people. On why do you have to be in church if you've already got the elevated view of morality? What does going to church do for? What does personal belief in Christ do for you? You just don't need it anymore.
0: Okay, because if sin is then mainly a social issue, then I don't personally need, I don't need an experience of salvation. I don't need to participate. Sure. Okay. So then we're talking about Weber um and Bush but if we step back a little bit I'm curious to hear more about de Tocqueville's take on the mainline churches because I know you mentioned him in the book what did he have to say what did he observe about these churches
1: well I think Tocqueville saw (laughs) I quote in the book a line that I love from Norman Mailer Mm -hmm. which said which goes um most of our national sociology is a desperate attempt to say something about America that Tocqueville hadn't already said. Uh, and you know there's something sort of, Tocqueville just sees all of it. And in a sentence or two, he mentions what what's, would be a fruitful line for 20 years of socio- American sociology. And he's just like two sentences and I'm on to something else. Um, Tocqueville understood and saw that the american protestant churches were wildly divided you know there are at least 15 different forms of baptists from two seed in the spirit baptists to time river baptists to you know just double d- doctrine or double predestination baptists there is this whole and they they hate each other or at mm-hmm. least they are in strong theological dispute with one another mm-hmm. and I'm, Not one of them believes what the other believes. And yet, out of them, Tocqueville said, there emerges the central current of American manners and morals. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that however much they disputed, in fact, their theological disputations, their strongly felt theological disputations add to this unified sense of America because what they gave America just considered sociologically, is a pattern of marriages, baptisms, funerals, the shape of life that mm-hmm. they gave us, right? And that's, that system of manners and morals is what they gave America. It is the great Mississippi running down through the center of our culture, of our society. And one can see why, if, since they are dealing, after all, with these fundamental human things, how you marry, how you how you bring up your children, how you die, and how you we remember you after death, since they are concerned primarily with those things, and are relatively unconcerned with government. They yeah. give a shape to American life that then becomes this, you know, uh, system of manners and morals with which government has to deal. Mm-hmm. Government, I can't really reform it because it's extra governmental. <laughs> now, he thinks that that's what the Protestant churches gave America. And America, in my analysis of Tocqueville, which, you know, I would look to Josh Mitchell, some some real Tocquevillians, Peter Berkowitz, Harvey Mansfield, some really serious Tocqueville scholars before I would assert this strongly. But my reading of Tocqueville in this context is that Tocqueville is saying in essence we got in the united states the sociological equivalent of a state church without the political burden of a state church okay Mm -hmm. because they, they combined to provide the advantages of a state church but of course nobody wanted a state church because where you had one the, you know, where you had the Episcopals, the Episcopalians as the state church, the Congregationalists subjected and where you had the Congregationalists, the Methodists subjected. So nobody, you know, the American religious freedom, if you look at the Danbury documents and the uh, Virginia House of Burgess stuff and the, all the early discussions of religious freedom, very little of it is that Jeffersonian, that one-off jeffersonian line about a wall of separation Mm
2: -hmm.
1: most of it is about um is coming from the churches it's the churches who don't want a state church because they're afraid they'll be the ones on the outside of it yeah so we kind of back into religious freedom out of the churches it's the the movement comes from the churches and that's a really interesting sociological effect which tocqueville saw uh, and understood that at its best, we ended up with the advantages of a state church without the disadvantages of a state church. Now Tocqueville, remember, is a French aristocratic Catholic. He doesn't think this can last. I mean, it's just wrong theologically, it's wrong uh, in terms of its history and sociology. But he is, you know, this is what makes him brilliant, is he's able to perceive the advantages that it does give this new democracy. Uh, and, uh, so we have the state church and my argument is the very people who would move from, uh, occupy wall street to black lives matters and down the road and tear down statues and so on that they are members of that state church, even though they don't know it, they are the descendants of the, the mainline Protestant move from the Puritans and it still has puritanical elements from the upstate New York revivalists. And it still has revivalist elements in the, from the burnt over district from the social gospel movement. And it has a lot of the social gospel movement in it. Uh, And they are its current incarnation, this state church, which is, or this feeling of belonging to the state church. Yeah. And from, (sighs)
0: when I hear a lot of the discourse out of these kinds of movements, I think there's a great value because they do draw attention to a lot of real problems that perhaps we weren't noticing before or weren't getting addressed. It's just very strange to me that most people will not acknowledge that there is some kind of religious spiritual fervor behind this. Like It's determined to be so secular, and yet the reality is it's really borrowing from these ideas that are religious you know but then what i would what i hear a lot of people saying though is that the last explicitly religious social movement in the u.s was civil rights martin luther king do you think that that is true that this was the last time that we had activists who were really proclaiming a kind of christian identity
1: um the last successful one
0: sure okay so do you see like where did this break happen like you have Martin Luther King who's revered by many people is not you know is unabashedly Christian and you know very much concerned about social issues how did this disconnect happen after king and after civil rights
1: well the answer is that the the main mainline protestant churches went into terminal decline hmm. 1965 if you include the black churches as i think you should um the mainline protestant churches had just over 50 percent of americans belonging to them today that number is probably under 10 percent that is a huge sociological change um and at the time i wrote the book nobody was mentioning it i thought you know how can we just ignore this enormous sociological change um and you know we can get into the weeds of analyzing whether the southern baptist convention wants to be a mainline church or an evangelical church i mean we can we can do all that fine granular stuff but i think in general we could look to a number of causes um none of them definitive but you know we could talk it's common here to talk about the rise of television it's common here to talk about um you know the Um, decline of the prestige of the the theologians in Europe. So Lutherans no longer looked to their magisterial theologians in Europe, or Episcopalians to the English. Uh, We could talk about any number of things. Um, But I concentrate in the book on the social gospel movement, because I think the logic is clearest there, especially its connection to the later um, post-Protestants. Because when Rauschenbach Rauschenbusch lists six social sins. It is exactly the things that are being protested today. Wow. It's militarism. It's, I mean, he's using a a different language, but he says it's militarism, it's bigotry, it's um, the uh, rule by the uneducated mob. It's, and he lists these, and then you look and see, well, if you're now not a protester, right Mm -hmm. but you're somebody you have a nice upper middle class job and you want to think you're a good person
2: yeah
1: how what do you need to do that Rauschenbusch said you need to join the great ganglion chain he was such a fun writer (laughs) we need to join the great gangling ganglion chain of redeemed personalities
0: wow all right. so that
1: you don't need yeah. to do anything in particular mm-hmm. you just have to reform your thinking you have to say i don't belong to the militarists i don't belong to the bigots i understand myself as someone who perceives the social sins and condemns them okay so that it's a matter of self-understanding now if you're uh, a lawyer in Peoria Illinois and you make 250,000 a year you're very successful and that's upper middle class money in Peoria right um how, and you want to know that you're a good person you have spiritual anxiety because you're a human being for God's sake of course you have spiritual anxiety how do you perceive of yourself as a good person well you say i'm not like those other people
2: yeah
1: i support i write a check to the sierra club i vote for the people who are anti-militarists i you know you express your redeemed personality and being redeemed in personality is the way he thinks that society gets changed we get this chain of people who are redeemed in personality who set themselves against in their own understanding of themselves against the social sins Mm -hmm. and once we have enough of them it begins to influence the society well it does you know he turns out to have been right we have this whole class of people now we could analyze them in a lot of other ways we could speak about their economic interests and their rent seeking and and all of that can be true or false you know and is certainly interesting but i was trying to tease out this one piece of thread from the from the tangle and that one piece of thread is this idea of a redeemed personality as the response to spiritual anxiety that you're a good person because you're on the right side of things
0: yeah so and you there are parts in the book when you talk about a lot of young people today being drawn to forms of religion that don't have this kind of pure puritanical orientation towards sin and redemption, rather brands specifically of Christianity that recognize look like we're all sinful and we're not going to redeem ourselves. Like there's it's kind of a waste of time to try to prove like, you know, how holy we are because I think people are coming, some people are coming to terms with the fact that look, like we're all broken, none of us are pure, nothing we're gonna do is ever gonna make us pure enough. What do you see happening amongst young people who are not drawn to this kind of post-Protestant kind of ethic?
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, we enter here what I would call the great reasonableness of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, G.K. Chesterton once said, original sin is the only Christian dogma you don't have to believe you can see that it's true every time you walk down the street. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so that this is this idea that we are broken people. What I perceive is on Twitter, you know, which is its own madness uh, and social media is a refusal to accept that. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody, everybody, there's a, on the one hand, it's accepted in that everybody's vulnerable if you just watch long enough. sure. But there is no forgiveness for being vulnerable. There's no idea that we're all vulnerable together. It's like this hungry mob waiting for somebody to make a misstep so that they can pounce. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I think the really interesting people are the ones who, who go their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, rebellion against rebellion never escapes the problems of rebellion. Um, those who are rebelling against a rebellious world don't magically recreate tradition uh that if a tradition gets broken you don't get it back by wanting to be a tradition uh, or to be traditional you just get something that's a little eccentric but i'm i'm interested in those people um but i also think they lost Mm -hmm. i mean the second half of the book was really an autobiographical account in certain ways of my time among the neocons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was an understanding that all these meetings I went to of evangelicals and Catholics together, and this idea that for the the leg of American of support for the American experiment that was the Protestant religions, the mainline Protestant religions, and it had collapsed, leaving us only Um, the economic leg of capitalism and the populist leg of of government that we were going to be able to substitute in this kind of meeting of evangelicals and catholics and that project failed it was a fascinating project and i was there at all of it but you know I, i think honesty demands that we say didn't work right it failed
0: why didn't it work
1: um I give several reasons in the book. One is um, the Catholicism was simply too alien. Yeah. And too big in a certain way to just slot in there um, that the evangelicals were their own different group um, that their theology was a little thin. Um, their biblical reading was fantastic, but the mm-hmm. theology was a little thin and they didn't have a vocabulary much as they looked to um what's his name, the Dutch theologian, uh, Kuiper.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, much as they looked to Kuiper to try and provide it to them, for them, they, you know, it never quite came together. The Catholic vocabulary didn't mix all that well with them. Um, evangelicalism is, you know, has been in decline for a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was a peak moment that passed. Uh, all of these add up, but ultimately I think they lost because the post-Protestants won. Just the way the mainline always won. We think that the mainline churches collapsed and that opened a vacuum. And this is a really true and reasonable analysis. The mainline churches collapsed, leaving a hole, a vacuum. And into that got sucked the two largest Christian groups that had always been excluded by the mainline, the evangelicals on one side and the Catholics on the other. And they got sucked into meat for the first time. I mean, most of the anti-Catholic evangelicals had never met a Catholic. Wow. Uh, and most of the Catholics didn't even know what an evangelical was. It was all Protestantism to them. Yeah. Uh, but they met, and it was the issue of abortion okay. that they met over. Right? That was the first of these. Uh, well, um, that was a really interesting meeting. And some interesting sociological and theological stuff came out of it. And by a handful of very smart people, both Catholic and evangelical, there was this interest in finding a way to combine them, not theologically, but sociologically, to provide the new current of manners and morals that the mainline Protestant churches themselves were ceasing to provide. Mm -hmm. So that we would get, we would keep the Tocquevillian project going. We would have a diverse religious feeling that provided the benefits of a state church without the disadvantages of a state church. The evangelicals and the Catholics would sort of combine to provide what the Baptist, Methodists, and Presbyterians used
0: to. Okay, so that's interesting to me because it sounds like the fact that their premise of working together, but also the goals seem very moralistic and not really rooted in a real ontological depth that kind of precedes the moral questions. And I think that's what ultimately, I think that's ultimately what made like mainline Protestantism fall apart because there's no, again, there's no like ontological depth or theological depth. So if, you know, Catholics and evangelicals are banding together to try to, you know, work against this, it's like, okay, but you're kind of playing their game. You're not, or you're, yeah, you're using the same kind of um, premise, but just, with a different emphasis.
1: Well, if we speak of Protestantism in the history of America, you're absolutely right, right? Mm-hmm. The, there were, in fact, shared ontological um, presuppositions among all those Protestant churches that Tocqueville's observing in the 1830s, yep. okay? Um, but, you know, their differences were profoundly felt and they achieved no th- no theological or ontological unity um they just kind of as they shook down into the national council of churches they basically dismissed theological questions yeah serious ontological questions but i think um, the idea behind evangelicals and catholics together was not that we were going to achieve theological unity although the the statement on justification uh for instance was Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, You know, we are not as far apart as you may suppose. Hans Kuhn had done the same thing reading Karl Barth years and years Mm -hmm. before. And Karl Barth couldn't believe it. Karl Barth's, you know, comment on Hans Kuhn's first book on justification was, uh, he has reported me right, I cannot, this Catholic priest has reported me right, I cannot believe, however, that he got Catholicism right uh you know because i kn- yeah. i just know that catholics don't feel this way about justification mm-hmm. uh and you know so there was some interesting theological stuff going on there but you're right it was a rather cold-blooded attempt to recreate the tocquevillian synthesis um which was not theological it was sociological yeah um because they knew they weren't going to achieve this and if anything both groups had too much theology to, you know, just solve this, Their (laughs) theological divides. And America was never based on an ontological unity.
0: Yeah, I think this is the key point, because if, yeah, if we're going to try to start some kind of movement or revolution based solely on social issues or moral issues, like that's not enough to sustain or to unite a people, you know, like there has to be a real um, ontological depth. To have that kind of unity that that kind of change right. but they were not
1: stuff. advocating i think you're right but they were not advocating a great awakening no no now a great awakening is what you're describing
0: because what i always understood from the catholic evangelical uh partnership most of the things that are coming together on were these moral issues like abortion and you know sexual morality and all that and it's like to me it's like that's just not powerful enough Unite people. And it's also not in, to me, I don't find that interesting enough. Like, I think what attracts me is a real proposal about the meaning of life, redemption, salvation, sin. Like, there has to be something that precedes all of those moral things to really change people, to change a society. And I don't think they really gave enough attention to that.
1: Right. But the battle they lost was a sociological battle. Yeah. I mean, the the post-Protestants won. And this Catholic and Evangelicals Together Project or Evangelicals and Catholics Together Project just got defeated. And Mm -hmm. there are many reasons, including this one, right? That finally it wasn't theologically and ontologically deep. There are many reasons it failed. But let's not ignore the primary reason. The primary reason is that the mainline Protestant, post-Protestants won. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, all that's true, but, you know, they they captured the colleges, they educated two generations, and they use that to win.
0: So then let me this. The last thing I'll ask you then is about, you know, why is it that there are so many people ascribing to this kind of post Protestant ethic, but don't know it? Like, what are the factors in the education system or in, cult, in the society at large that kind of blind so many of us to this reality?
1: Yeah, we could, again, this is a tangle and we could kind mm. of tease out certain threads. One thread I, I think I mentioned to you mm. was the decline of American studies. Now, remember, American studies was a new discipline. It emerged in the 30s, 40s and 50s right in american colleges so somebody like tom wolf went and got his doctorate at, in american studies i don't, i don't i'm sure that these some of these programs still exist but they don't occupy this space that they once did uh and it was the american studies movement that urged us to look to the puritans right that said we are forgetting what hawthorne knew We are forgetting what, you know, Hawthorne, who comes relatively late, um, we are forgetting what generations of American school children used to know that it really did all start on Plymouth Rock. Uh, We're forgetting the puritanical origin of America. And then the Great Awakening, which gave, you know, an expression of Christianity to out of Massachusetts. I mean, Edwards was in Northampton. Uh, gave this expression of American Christianity. We're forgetting our religious history so that when we start to have religious impulses, we don't have a vocabulary or a history in which to set them. Yeah. Now, that's only one thread in this tangle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the constant pressure of uh, intellectualized secularism, the idea that American... You know, when I was young in college, uh, American exceptionalism was always taught in terms of religion.
2: Mm.
1: American exceptionalism is the fact that America doesn't seem to be undergoing the same species or uh, speed of secularism that Europe is undergoing. That was what was meant by American exceptionalism. We are not retracing the path of Europe. Uh, Mm. intellectually and socially. That's what we meant by American exceptionalism. Uh, I think that sense is gone to the point that I simply don't know what people mean when they mock American exceptionalism.
2: Mm. I
1: mean, I never hear American exceptionalism defended anymore. Sure, But I also, when I hear it mocked, I don't know what it seems to mean something vague like America was great or you know something very vague like that. Whereas in origin, it had a very specific meaning, that we are not retracing the path of Europe. The line of, um, well, the line one sometimes here, I can't remember who it's from, says fascism is always descending on the United States and landing in Europe. Uh, is an expression of that old sense of American exceptionalism, right? That there's a sort of healthy society here that gets these European bugs, but our antibody system tends to throw them off Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that it doesn't in Europe. That was the idea of American exceptionalism. And the root of it was, in its original coinage, was to talk about religion, that America was a very religious nation. Um, Peter Mm -hmm. Verger Peter Berger's old line uh, from the 60s and 70s. Um, he looked at India as the most religious uh, country in the world and Sweden as the least religious. And he described America as a nation of Indians ruled by Swedes.
2: Huh. Okay,
1: right? that that's we had,
2: interesting.
1: You know, yeah. uh, and I'm not sure that's true anymore, but you can see mm-hmm. that was this view that there was something odd about America how long it maintained this Christian sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's something still strange about America, uh, which is that it retains this religious sense. It just was taught from secularism and a variety of other sources that we've talked about to, to forget the religious origins of its spiritual anxiety.
0: And I would also add that, you know, in my experience as an undergrad, at least like, so much of the way we were taught history, it was coming through a post structuralist lens, which really makes no space for any kind of spiritual or you know any existential kind of realities. Like it's very, um, very pragmatic, very positivist.
1: So that the, and this is, I think, exactly right, so that the two. Lines I offered for post Protestantism to understand it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: One was more for Puritanism. One was morphological. This is a perpetual possibility for humans. Mm -hmm. And the other was genealogical. It derives from the Puritans. A post structuralist account would dismiss both of those. Neither of them are helpful. They would say, you know, neither of them tells us what people are really doing. you know, and I'm not going to go back to Claude Levi-Strauss and say that I'm a structuralist, but I am going to say, you know, there is an ontological truth about the human. Mm -hmm. This is why I think abortion actually is important. And I've spent a lifetime in the pro-life movement, um, because I think it speaks to the deepest ontological and metaphysical roots of what it is to be human. Uh, But, you know, I think that we need um, to understand that human beings are not recreated ab nova, that we don't get, you know, homo Civiticus or homo postmodernists, that we are actually just creating conditions, new conditions for the same old possibilities of human being to express themselves. And that's true both morphologically and it's true genealogically. Our history shapes us whether we know it or not. Uh, To certain forms. And our lack of knowing it, I think our lack of knowing history has injured us. It's left us in a condition that, that makes much of what's happening today inexplicable.
0: So I highly recommend to those listening that you check out An Anxious Age, because, again, as I said before, when I first read it, it just opened my eyes up to a lot of what I was experiencing and gave me the tools and the language to really articulate it, which it just helped me to be more free and not to feel just confused by everything. And with that being said, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Joseph Bottom, for joining us. And um, we hope you'll listen again. Take care. Thanks
1: for having me. Let's do this again. All right.